we are privileged here to have tonight. Three Talmudim of the Rav. Rabbi Herschel Schefter, Rabbi Menachem Ganak, and Rabbi Mayor Twersky. Over the next 20 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about the Rav and about some of the issues regarding his legacy. The first question which I'd like to pose to one of Rabbi Soloveitchik's prize students, as well as his grandson, to Rabbi Mayor Twersky, is about that quote regarding the Rub's loneliness, where the Rub says, let me emphasize, however, that by stating I am lonely does not mean that he doesn't have friends, but there's a state of loneliness. It makes it sound as the Rav always felt alone. And that's not my personal memory of the Rav. Perhaps, Rabbi Tversky, you could share with us what the Rav meant when he penned that sentence. Throughout the Rav's life, he enjoyed very fulfilling and meaningful relationships within his family, with his parents, with uh, other relatives as well, with Benachim Kokovsky, the Avodas HaMelech, with friends, with Talmidim, and these were very fulfilling and meaningful relationships. But when the Rav spoke of loneliness, he, he wasn't speaking in social or psychological terms or, or categories. The Rav himself explained what he meant, and that was simply the Rav's interpretation of the faith experience was one which engendered loneliness. It was a philosophical category that, that he was employing. The sense that a man of faith has when he doesn't feel that closeness, that proximity to the Rebona Shalom is one that engenders loneliness. The sense of being apart and removed from the secular technological society is one which engenders loneliness in a man of faith. I think later in, in, in the essay, Lonely Man of Faith, the Rav says that loneliness is, is, is nothing but the act of doubting one's ontological worth, legitimacy, and reasonableness. It was a philosophical category of mo'onu mechayenu, and, and one, again, a loneliness which was engendered by a, a, when, when the person loses, even for a fleeting moment, that sense of connection to the Yavon Shalom, the sense of being apart from society. And, and, and we need to be very, very weary in thinking about the Rav, talking about the Rav, not to lower him to, to our own level, but to try to look upward and, and glimpse him on his level. Would you like to add something to that? Well, I, I would, I would add uh, just to what Rabbi Tversky said that um, 
just in terms of speaking a little bit about the Vistra Derech, because I think it relates to the sense of loneliness as well. The root of the Vistra Derech was really, a, there was a theological dimension to it, namely that the Rebbe would always say, you know, our job is not to explain the why, but the what, because the why, in terms of, in, in terms of God's motivation, is, is beyond, beyond human comprehension, um, and God's will is self-justifying. There's no need for God to explain our, our job, in terms of Bristolundus, was simply to define the given. And, and the, the notion, of course, my, you know, Maimonides develops, the Ram develops, that God, in a sense, is completely unknowable. I think that generated this sense, which Rabbi Torsky speaks about, that sense of loneliness. But there was another aspect about the Rav, um, related to that is also in terms of the, the individual is each individual is unique that's an important theme in all of his writings that's the, the basis the foundation of the mitzvah of Avelis. and each person's uniqueness and his specialness and his therefore because he's unique his, his incompatibility that he can't be submerged in a crowd that also generates this sense of ontological loneliness but not necessarily social loneliness of Schefter um how would you describe the Rav's approach to Pesach when so many people seem to suggest that they receive different answers to the same question? I think it is correct that different people receive different answers to the same question. Take, for example, uh, many years ago, my wife had a baby, my had a Shaila in Hilchus Nida. So I asked one of the local Rabbanim here, who happened to be an Ungarishan. So he says, if it would have been a yekka, I live on Bennett Avenue. He says, if it would have been a yekka, he would have given a different sock. But because I'm not a yekka, I'm from Eastern Europe, he's giving a different sock. Rav Salvechik would give a different sock to different people. I remember one fellow approaches me. He says, Rav Salvechik held from the head to Mechira for Shemitah. How does he know? Because before he went on Aliyah, he asked the Rav, what should I do next year is a Shemitah year? Rav Salvechik said, do you sell your chametz? Do you rely on Mechira's chametz? He can rely on the head to Mechira. In the yeshiva, Rav Soloveitchik explained why his family tradition is that there, uh, there is no het mechira, it just doesn't exist. So this fellow was a pasha to balabas. He asked this fadrei makot, this balabas. He's not a talmud of his. He doesn't have to follow all of his psalchim. So he doesn't rely on the het mechira like he relies on mechira's chametz. For the talmudim, he gives a different psalm. This is a common practice. Many, many rabbanim do this. They give one psalm for, for one person, a different psalm for another person. That's what Rav Soloveitchik used to say that it doesn't apply to say over a psaq. He told us in class, if anybody tells you over my name of psaq, you're not permitted to believe him, because people have namanas only on what the facts of the case are, not on what the psaq was. He showed a Mishnah like that, and Gemara is like that. He said people are going to say over psaqim in his name, and different different situations for different people he's given different psaqim, even if it's exactly exactly the same case. He was very careful with his psalm. I think he was very clear with his psalm. He would explain in the yeshiva what his psalm were based on. Very clear. I just wanted to add one comment about the loneliness. I was impressed by the movie. This is the third time that I saw the movie. It's very moving. Uh, I was impressed. Every single picture has Rabbi Salvation with such a big smile. He would crack jokes in the middle of class. He would crack jokes in the middle of a public uh, lecture. Also, he would tell stories in the middle. He was a very levitic fellow, a very friendly person. I don't see how, how people can misunderstand that. I think that he was a lonely person. In, uh, in the apartment where many of us uh, had the opportunity to live with Rabbi Soloveitchik, so when we were in college still, he would uh, sometimes ask us what we were studying. 
So if we were studying Hebrew literature, he would ask us which poems, and then he would recite the poems by heart when we had difficult reading them in the text. And then he would ask us if we were having a test on it, and we would tell him basically we were. He would ask us questions, and he would smile, and he would laugh with us because he thought we were so unprepared for his test and for any test in the college. Um, but there was always that, that friendliness. There was always that uh, sense of joy in Rebbe Salavechik. Rebbe Tversky, I'd like to, you to reflect upon this, if you may. Um, from a very early age, the Rav was nurtured with the Torah of risk. And at a later age, he attended the University of Berlin. The Rav wrote an essay called Halachic Man, which magnificently describes the typology of the Ish Halacha, which describes Rav Chaim, his grandfather. But he wrote that essay, that beautiful essay about the man of risk, he wrote it with the language of Berlin. How do we deal with all of these discussions regarding the potential conflicting typologies between the Rav, the man of risk, and the Rav, the man that attended the University of Berlin? I think that the, the, the operative word here is that everything which the, the, the Rav studied and he experienced coexisted harmoniously within him. Meaning that, that the, the, the Rav, his, his roots deeply, deeply implanted in, in the soil, in the terrain of Torah, of Torah Shabbat, was free to accept and use and draw upon what he found in, in Chochmah to be consistent and compatible and helpful in his presentation. And he felt no apologetic need to reconcile that which was inconsistent or incompatible. When, when you either listened to, to, to the Rav draw upon his, his un, unequaled mastery of Torah, of Chochmah as well, it was six of one, half a dozen of the other. Sometimes he would use again, as you mentioned, in Isha Halof and other places as helpful categories for presenting Torah. And other times it was used as a contrast and, and it was the critique. There, there are many, many sweeping critiques of, uh, of, of Western thought and Western civilization. Within the essay which gives the, the film it, its title, the lonely man of faith. So the Rav has, in, in, in one sentence, dismisses a, a large part of the history of Western philosophy, saying that they missed the point in all their attempts to, to prove the existence of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, because what they were doing is, 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 is rendering HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Rathman impersonal. And, and in one, one fell swoop, there is this critique of, of Western thought. So there was, no, there was no tension because the Rav didn't have any dual loyalty. The Rav was rooted in Torah. The Rav stood within a tradition, a tradition which the, the Rambam stood within the tradition, the Ramos stood within the tradition, the Malbim stood within the tradition, many, many Gedolis throughout the generations who clearly valued Chochmah. 
they valued Chachma, but Chachma had to be filtered through the, 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 the lens of Torah. What, what, what Torah approved of, what was helpful and consistent with Torah, was something the Rav drew upon, and what was inconsistent and, and incompatible, so the Rav, the Rav uh, simply dismissed, or if anything, highlighted the contrast between the Torah's approach and that which is to be found in, 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 in the Western thought. I mean, you know, there's a famous letter that Ramesh Soloveitchik wrote to the city fathers, whoever it was, who were deciding who was going to be the chief rabbi of Tel Aviv when Rav was a candidate in the 1930s. And he writes, first of all, that my son is a yachid b'havonis ha that he was unique in his generation. We have to remember this is in the 1930s, so Chaim Oizer was alive, Mrs. Amin was alive, that he was unique in his grasp and understanding of Torah. But he also says that he had now gotten a doctorate in philosophy, and uh, was all his professors exclaimed his extraordinary genius. So there was, I mean, clearly this was a this is a factor, an important factor in terms of uh, the Rav, his unique quality. But all of this is integrated into one person. The thing I'm not sure about the Rav, you know, when he goes to Berlin and he and um, you know he gets a doctorate, he's very immersed in uh, in contemporary philosophical uh, thought. I mean, there are two dimensions. One, of course, the Rav himself was an enormously curious person. Knowledge per se interested him. I remember I once, there was once a doctor, who was a prominent oncologist who was doing research about cancer, and he wanted to meet with the Rav. He was also a Soviet Jewish activist, Sam Corman. And he wanted to meet with the Rav to talk to him about, uh, they, were, they were having a program in Forest Hills, Menachem Begin then was coming to speak. He wasn't the prime minister yet. And he wanted to speak to the Rav about Soviet Jewry. So I arranged the uh, meeting. So he asked Sam after, what, what did you think? So I said, I was just shocked how much he knew about, about research in terms of cancer. I'm not talking about, you know, broad strokes. He knew about the toxicity of drugs. He knew, you know, very specific areas of knowledge. So, you know, first of all, he was a very curious man, and knowledge per se interested him. But also, you know, that he used it in terms of the milieu of the time. He used it as, you know, to fortify Torah be able to communicate to a new generation in both in the language and the vocabulary and the you know logical constructs that were important to contemporary Jews he, he, he leveraged it in an enormously important way to preserve the Jewish tradition I, I once wrote an article this one everybody thinks of the love as being such a revolutionary you know in this this film also of course you know the, the divide between him and Rabban Kutlin and all the Rosh Hashivas but his approach was enormously conservative. He was he was using modern tools to conserve and preserve an ancient tradition, namely the Torah, that was very much at risk at that time in the United States. I compare him to the Ramban. The Ramban, the Rav used to say that the Briskiderach is seen in the Ramban, and the Ramban is the most original of the thinkers amongst the Rishonim. But when you think about what the Ramban wrote, everything he writes, every single volume of the Ramban is to preserve the ancient traditions. To, he writes the, 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 the Chumash is in opposition to the Menezer to protect the tradition of Chazal and the Medrash. He writes the Sefer Mitzvah to protect the Bahag. He writes the Mohammed in defense of the, of the Rif. So on the one hand, he's enormously original, but it's always to preserve the old tradition, the tradition of Rebchaim. I think the Rav's position was uh, 
he didn't feel that we have to be afraid of secular studies. Everything in the world, all of the Chachma in the world comes from the Rabbani Shalom. Same one and gave the Torah, so there can't be any contradictions. So he didn't think that there was any chashash. Uh, the issue came up about having all the different graduate schools, opening up Einstein Medical School and so on. So he didn't think that we have to be worried about that. There aren't going to be any contradictions. Even what people think, not only about Chachma Sateva, he has one of the published essays, is, a, is a, an interpretation of the passage in the Gemara in Sanhedrin, where the Gemara has uh, different pitgamim amamiim, popular expressions that people used to say. So the Gemara says, where does this idea come from? If people have such an einfall, it must, be, it must have a mocker in Tanakh. So the Gemara gives a mocker in Tanakh to what people think. So he thought also, philosophy, if people come up with ideas, it usually has a mocker. It comes from the Tzalim of Akim, comes from the person's Either the Jews being rooted in Torah, people having a ceremony. He didn't think that we have to be afraid of Chachmas. Uh, We're blessed to have uh, Dean Bacon here t tonight. And in one of my conversations with the Rav, actually, um, it took place after a group of uh, four women uh, from Stern College came to meet with the Rav. I actually uh, married one of them. But uh, at that time, we barely knew each other. Um, where the Rav uh, told me that he gave the opening shear at, Stern, at the Stern Talmud program so that everybody would know how he felt about women's education and the need for women to be educated with the same passion and intellectual depth as men. Which leads us, I think, to a larger question. What was the Rav's attitude to the role of women in Jewish life, in learning, and in Jewish ritual? Rav please. My mother has uh, shared her memories with me, how the Rav would often reminisce about the, the assimilation that he had witnessed in, in Eastern Europe. He said that, that uh, those who were not present have a romanticized uh, view and version of what was happening in, in Eastern Europe. That it's true that in America things were even worse, but there were serious problems with assimilation in Eastern Europe as well. And the Rav, as many ever Gedoli Yisrael of the previous generation as well, clearly attributed it to the lack of, of chinuch, the lack of education, and, and felt that the prescription to reverse that trend of assimilation was intensified chinuch. And the assimilation, the problem of assimilation was especially acute with women due to the lack of, of, of any formal system of, of, of chinuch habonos, of, of education for girls and, and young women. That the, the tradition from mother to daughter, from within the parental home, which the Rav described so beautifully, wasn't succeeding in transmitting Torah values and in grounding the young generation in, in Torah. And the Rav, as in terms of the Rav's prescription for the assimilation, it was the same that other doctors, in, in quotation marks, wrote when the Chafetz Chaim and the Imre Emes, the, the great Gera Rebbe, and so many of the other uh, great giants of the 
pre-war generation all lent their support to the Beis Yaakov movement, they were all responding to this phenomenon. Now, unquestionably, the Rav's prescription was a stronger prescription. When a doctor prescribes, so a doctor has to decide how strong a prescription. The Rav clearly advocated a much more intensive form of, of chinuch habanos, and uh, unabashedly so. But it, it was a, a response, again, to the, to the assimilation that he had witnessed in Eastern Europe, and, and, and certainly, which was an even greater problem on, uh, on, on these shores. The Rav advocated women being taught and women studying long before there was such a thing as, uh, as, as, as feminism in Jewish circles, long before that became a, a cause which was uh, adopted and, and, and uh, co-opted and, and in, in no way bore any uh, relationship with, with any such, uh, and any such uh, agenda. It was simply a question of transmitting the Masorah and the Rav's opinion was that, I think that there was even a quote in, in the film that just as the Chafetz Chaim had commented that now that women are literate, so women have to be given at least some basic minimal education. So the Rav said, so now women are much more than literate. Women are getting advanced uh, degrees and a highly sophisticated secular education. He felt that it had to be matched and equaled by uh, an, an equally advanced and, and sophisticated uh, Torah education. I would assume that that, that that also meant that the whole one of the purposes of empowering women so that they can grow in their learning was to guarantee the immortality and the eternality of the Jewish home. And that since the woman was the anchor of the home, that the Rav wanted to make sure that the woman had the education to guarantee that home. As the Rav speaks about regarding his own home, how his, his mother was the nurturer of the home from a spiritual perspective. Is that a correct uh, evaluation? I, I think that, that that's absolutely true. And the other, the other source, which um, of course comes to mind, is in, in, the, in his uh, eulogy for the uh, Talmud Rabbitson, where he talks about how we have two Masoras. There's a Masora of Musar Avicha and a Masora of Torah Simecha. And, and this was the Rav's attempt to ensure and to perpetuate that second Masora, the, the, the maternal uh, tradition of, of Torah Simecha. Rabbi Shechter, Rabbi Ganak, um, when, uh, when I was one of the Rav Shamashim, we had this like call sheet, which basically was a list of different phone numbers on the sheet. And um, it had Rav Moshe Feinstein's phone number on it. It had Rav Ritterman's phone number on it. It had Rav Cutler's phone number on it. So the Rav's relationship with Gedolim, with Rav Moshe Feinstein, with Rav Ritterman, with Rav Aaron Cutler, with uh, Rav Schneer Cutler, with Rav Huttner, they may have disagreed on certain approaches to Torah, but it seemed to me that there was a strong relationship amongst these gedolim. Um, can you please comment on that? Well, he, he had close relationships. I mean, what you say is true. I mean, he had close relationships with many of them. I mean, they all had him, had, you know, had the highest regard for him. I mean, it was hard not to, you know, simply people appreciated learning because the Bible was simply such a stunning genius. And it was, it was unknown that he was a stunning genius. He had this, this extraordinary capacity to communicate Torah. But uh, 
even my own community, when I'd speak to Shnei Kotla, others, they'd, you know, they'd always speak about something that the Rav told me. Shnei told me that he asked the Rav advi- his advice, and the, I heard this from the Rav also, about what, what to publish when Rabban was Nifta. The Rav advised first put out the, um, put out the, the Machshava before he put out the Halacha. I remember when when Rav Shnei, um, Rav Shnei was nifter. The Rav went to, to Lakewood to Menachem Avol Malkiel. Malkiel told him, "I was your grandfather's friend. I was your father's friend. Now I'll be your friend." And of course, he was very close to Moshe. Moshe was was his, his mother's first cousin. Um, he told me stories about the Panevichirov. But you know, to be candid, you know, he was he, he was you know. He had these close relationships with many of them, but he was he was in many approaches he was different, and that was you know indicated in this film, but always rooted, you know, in the halacha. I mean, the person who the Rav admired the most, you know, who was the Rav's hero? The Rav's hero was Reb Chaim, his grandfather. When he speak about Reb Chaim, it was you know Reb Chaim was just in a different world, a different category. I remember he was saying once in the shir, he said, "My grandfather Reb Chaim was the greatest mind of his time." I don't mean he was the greatest Jewish mind. He was the greatest mind of his time. So, and the Ish you know, Halacha is a uh, is modeled as you know, if it's a, of of Chaim. So when we think about where was the Rav rooted, it was in this tradition of Chaim. But um, you know, while he had, he had he had relationships with many of them, but he was independent, and you know positions that he took, which were principal positions, whether it be about uh, university education or about um, 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 issues in terms of women, women's education, set them apart, at least in certain areas, but I don't think it ever in any way fractured the relationships that he had with them. I, Rabbi Torsky, uh, Rabbi Yitzhak Torsky once told me that the love once gave a class in his house in Brookline. Some conservative rabbis asked to, to study with him about some issue, and he, they came to the, to the Rav. And Rabban Kotler apparently heard about this and was very upset, and he called the Rav up about it. And the Rav said, you know, I don't understand your position. I'm, they're coming to me. I'm teaching them to our Hashem. So, you know, there are obviously differences between them sometimes in nuance, but it never represented a fracture in terms of the relationship because it, the relationship was always there. And people always recognized how, how special he was. And he was very gracious, I think, in Janus, in terms of the way he viewed them as well. Just a footnote. Uh, quite a few years ago, uh, a volume was published on Bob uh, Metzi, I think, of the uh, notes of Rav Chaim Soloveitchik that Rav Soloveitchik had. And someone uh, printed it without permission of the family. So there was a very... Um, a negative introduction that was written to that uh, volume where they quoted some negative comment that Abyanka Kamenetsky had said about Rasulovitchi. So uh, Nelson Kamenetsky was interviewed by an Israeli newspaper. So he said the whole story is not true. And he was telling, he wrote, uh, he wrote this, uh, it was printed in the newspapers, I think. Um, he showed it to us that uh, there was a time that Rabbi Yankov Kamenetsky came to Rav Soloveitchik and he pleaded with him. He wanted to open a yeshiva in Boston. He lived in Canada at that time. He wanted the Rav to be the Rosh Yeshiva and he wanted to be the Mashgiach of the yeshiva. 
And uh, the Rav said he didn't think that Boston was ready for yeshiva at that time. But otherwise, he, was, he said his father, Rav Yanka, was kafuf to the Rav. And he said that uh, before he started the whole conversation with the Rav, he wanted to start the yeshiva. So he first spoke in learning. Rav Yanka Kamenetsky suggested a, a, an interpretation of the Rambam, an, an original interpretation of a certain Rambam in Hilchas Malachim. So the Rav approved. So he said his, Rav Kamenetsky said his father, all the years, would say over that Vatur, and he said, and Rav Soloveitchik approved Mashtigal Torah. So he liked it. He said he was uh, very respectful of the Rav. You know, there's a famous quote they say that, you know, it's always Machlok is Beisil and Beishamai. Hill and Shammai themselves didn't fight that often. It was, you know, the second tier people who, uh, where the Machlokis appears. There's one more question that I'd like to ask. Um, but before, before I do that, um, if I may, I'd like to uh, also um, have a little, say a little Hakarasatov to some of the people here tonight who worked on this event. I, I want to thank uh, Georgia Pollock from uh, communications and her wonderful staff to Jeff Rosengarten and, and his uh, unbelievable staff. Um, and I want to particularly thank uh, Alan Brava, uh, who really made this happen. The final question is um, is to uh, Rabbi Tversky and then to everybody else. And that is what was the Rav like as a, as a grandfather? At the end of the day, tell me who was the Rav, how he should calibrate our souls, and what do you think his legacy is? And please do it in five minutes. Chaim Velashana has a comment in, uh, in, in his commentary in Perkei Avos, Ruach Chaim. The, the, the opening mission in Perkei Avos, of course, traces the chain of transmission, the Masara, Moshe Kivel Tor, Misinai, Masara, the Yoshua, and, and so on. The Chaim Velashana explains how each link in this glorious tradition of transmission was characterized by a special, special quality of anava, of humility. Moshe Rabbeinu received Torah from Sinai because Moshe Rabbeinu was the one about whom the Torah said, Ba'ish Moshe onav ma'od mikol ha'adam asher p'nei adama. That Moshe Rabbeinu was exceedingly, exceedingly humble. Growing up as, as a young child, the only thing that, that I knew that was distinctive about my grandfather was that most people's grandfathers didn't commute to New York for two or three days a week, and mind that he, he, he went off every Tuesday morning carrying his own valise, as, as, as he was wont to, to call it, um, and, and he came back Thursday afternoon. Usually he timed it, depending upon the time of the year. He knew that sometimes we struggled for the Mincha Mayav Minyan in my father's shtibel, so he would come straight to, straight to the shtibel to, 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 to make the Minyan. And there was nothing about the way he carried himself, there was nothing about his conduct that made you think 
that he was anyone different or anyone, any, anyone special. There was no trappings of greatness, of royalty around him. He was exceedingly, exceedingly humble, as had to be the case given, given his, his, his greatness. His, his interaction on a personal level, also very warm, caring, in, in, involved, consistent with what, what, what Rebitzel of Olozhenos describes as, as, as one of the manifestations of, of anova, of humility, which is identifying with people, their needs, and, and, and their problems. In terms of at the end of the day, the end of the night as the case may be, who the Rav was, the Rav was a giant of Torah. First and foremost, a giant of Torah who towered not only in his generation, but you could have transplanted him back to the generation of Reb Kiva Eger. You could have transplanted him back to the generation of the Shach of the Ramah. He would have been a towering presence in any of those generations. By the force of his persona, because of his greatness in Torah, and because when people looked at him, they knew that again, that in addition to that singular mastery and creativity within Torah, this was a man who also knew all Chochmah in the world. He, by, by the force of his persona, by the force of his teachings, was a testimony to the eternity of Torah. The fact that Torah can be, should be lived, observed, and, and studied in any time, in any place. And ultimately, I think that's what he stood for, and that's what he represented, and that's what his legacy for us is. Well, I think the Rav's legacy lies in two areas. One is just a historical area, historical fact. In the 1950s, many sociologists, many people wrote, wrote off American orthodoxy, even and probably more broadly, even American Jewry, famously Life magazine, had a cover issue about the demise of the American Jew. American Jew survives. It wasn't Life magazine, Look magazine. Look magazine, of course, has since disappeared. But part of the reason that American Jewry survived is because of, of the Rav, both in terms of the positions that he took, preserved the Orthodox synagogue, Jewish education, but also the model that he represented for the broad American Jew, even, even more universally for, uh, beyond that even, even the non-Jewish community, because as you know, Mayor points out, it was this extraordinary confluence of of such genius and grasp in so many different areas. Rabbi Lamb once told me that there was a very correct observation. You know, the, the Rav, you know, he had many students, and, and some students were, you know, really excelled in certain areas. But you never find a person, both not only in terms of the breadth, that he was not just a great philosopher. He was the greatest philosopher and theologian of his time. He wasn't just a great Talmud Chacham. He was the greatest Talmud Chacham of his time. He wasn't just an eloquent, an eloquent speaker. He was the most eloquent speaker of his time. And all these extraordinary characteristics were, you know, were in one person. So he served also as a model and inspiration for so many people. 
There's another quality. I just want to speak about the Rebbe just one second. I found some refreshing about him. The main point is there was no pretense about him. There was no, you know, there was no. What, he was just so extraordinary. What happens nowadays, you know, there's, there's a gerontocracy. You become a guddle. It, it, it starts thinking about it, man, when you're 85 years old. But he was, when he was 13 years old, he wrote a kuntris. It's printed, you know, the, his kuntris Chaslavich, which behind Brisker was, it was, it was, it was just stunning. This was a 13-year-old boy. This was a, a bar mitzvah boy writing. Um, so the genius, the other quality was his extraordinary integrity and in terms of his positions that he took in monetary monetary areas um, and also the other element I wanted to just mention with this close is his belief in the individual you know in the old debate between the individual and the state or the corporate area he, he came down on the side of the individual he had much greater faith in individuals he, he was very wary of organizations. Um, he, he once commented that, you know, because of this, each person is unique, what I spoke about before. He, they, didn't, they don't merge together in one cohesive. And it, it, when, that's why he said, I, I'm reluctant to visit, to go to meetings. Um, and it was that confidence in the individual. When I say confidence in the individual, I don't mean that a person because this is a misrepresentation of his position to say, well, he had confidence in everybody and everybody can, you know, can have a position on a halachic issue. Well, that would be nonsense. He, he didn't even think in the shir. Not everybody's entitled to that. It requires a certain amount of, you know, of erudition. And just he wouldn't go to a doctor and ask, you know, everybody has a position about something. But he did have confidence in the individual. And, and I think it was from the individual, not, not the whole, the organization, but the, that he believed that in, it was because of the settlement of him that, that the, 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 from that would be the wellspring for the reemergence of American Jewry. And I think if, you know, that, at, that we see here at Yeshiva and other places, but the medrash that are, are filled, he played an important contribution, much more significant than people even recognize, to the preservation of, the, of, of that tradition on, these, on this on American soil, something that could not have been anticipated. And the things that he did were just um, were so courageous, starting Maimonides, um, you know, little by little, teaching one, two, the, it's like a picture that the Chazal tell us about Rabbi Kiva, after the Chubin, after such destruction. Rabbi Kiva was the one who taught this student, this five students, when he went to the Torah. Rav said, that's really what we celebrate. And he rebuilt Torah. And that's what the Rav did. It was, those, those are rare individuals, historic individuals with that, within the, in the ferment of Jewish history. There's Rabbi Akiva, but there was also Rabbi Yeshivir Salavetcher. His integrity, his genius, we're all the beneficiaries of. Uh, to say who Rabbi Salavetcher was, my impression was he was a very big Tamchok. That's the main thing. Everything else, all the philosophy and everything else, everything was an aspect of the of the, of the uh, big Tamachachim that he was. And his position was that he insisted that we cannot preserve Yiddishkeit if it's just going to be in a little corner, a little vinkle. You're going to have religious Jews just in, uh, in Williamsburg. You're just going to have religious Jews in uh, Muncie. We have to have religious Jews all over in every area. We, he was very proud of the fact that, uh, that we have alumni of Yeshiva College who are experts in chemistry and physics and medicine and are lawyers and so on. 
who are very big Talmud and not just Yoidei Sefer. He said he knew the highest level that was produced by German jury under Rabbi Samson Rechel Hirsch's uh, guidance. He said those who were not in the rabbinate, the Balabatim, they were Yoidei Sefer. But he says he succeeded. He was very happy. He succeeded. And the yeshiva succeeded. And having doctors, lawyers, engineers who know Ketzeis and Nesivas, not Stam, they know how to look in a Sefer. They know how to find out to look up a Psaac. They're talking, learning. Some of his, some of these people who are in secular fields are bigger Tamir Chacham than Rabbis and Yeshivas. Just that they're not cut out to be Rabbis and Yeshivas, so they went to a secular field. So he felt that this was essential for preserving Yiddishkeit in America. You have to have outstanding Tamir Chacham all over. You cannot just concentrate everybody in Williamsburg. That was the Loshan that he used to say. You have to have all over. Before we conclude the evening, I want to just ask um, Rabbi Harlap if he could just say a few words. It's very difficult for me. To comment now, I saw the movie twice. The first time I cried unabashedly. And I cried almost as much now. And then to be followed by the Talmudim of the love, all of them were extraordinary. We come off Parshish B'Shalach. The beginning of Parshish B'Shalach, by Yikach Moshe is Atmos Yosef. And Moses takes the bones of Joseph. This documentary, to my mind, and I just thought of it as I was sitting here today, because I don't have a note in front of me. To my mind, this documentary, what happened tonight, is another form of Ayikach Moshe Es Asmots Rabbeinu Yosef Do Alevi Salvation. And the Gemara tells us all the years that the Jews trekked to the wilderness, there were two Aronos, two boxes that marched with them side by side. And Shoalim and the Shavim and the Omdim and the Chosrim would ask the question, Mativon shall Otan Aronos. What is the nature, what is the purpose of having a box of Atsomos? And next to it is the box of the Shino himself. This is what it was. The box of Yosef and the box of the Shino. And the answer was, no. That the one who is in this box, the Atsomos of Yosef, and don't forget who Yosef was. Yosef was the viceroy of all Egypt. He was brought up in a strange culture. He lived through dungeons. You cannot imagine the variety and the disparate nature of Joseph's life. And at the end, he is called, no matter how many people resented him, from his family at the very beginning to all the world. But at the end, he remains Joseph Hatzadik. Kiem, the one who is in this box, fulfilled everything that is in this box in the Shrina. 
And that's what I feel tonight, and I've always felt it. He aimed Atmos Yosef's Dova Levi when he was alive, and he still is alive. This week alone, three of his Talmidim published for him. In one week, they brought to my office three of his Talmidim. And it's happening almost every week. It's unbelievable, incredible. He aimed Mishib Oronzu, Mashakosub Boron. Thank you all very much for joining us here tonight.